through Seattle Walk Report and through being just more open and present with what is, it's changed how I see the world completely and how I see my own life and my own journey. It's all journey, never destination, you know? And so this comic has really changed how I see everything. Welcome to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. I'm Edward Krigsman. Last time we enjoyed a conversation with Timothy Dooley, now owner of Seattle's storied Blue Moon Tavern, perched on the edge of Seattle's University District neighborhood for about 100 years. Today, we're going to step outside for an opportunity to explore not just the U District, but dozens of other Seattle neighborhoods. And through the eyes of the creator of the comic Instagram series, Seattle Walk Report, which was published as a book in 2019, with now over 22,000 Instagram followers, she has just published a new book, Secret Seattle, an illustrated guide to the city's offbeat and overlooked history. So today we'll explore what possibilities arise when apparently trivial aspects of the city can be thoughtfully observed, depicted, and shared. We'll explore how curiosity can deepen our connection to the places around us, leading to hopefully a greater sense of wonder. We'll also look at the stories embedded in the ephemera, textures, and objects that comprise our city. And stick around. Throughout today's conversation, we're also going to get to hear from some of Seattle's children, all avid readers of Seattle Walk Report. And they're going to share questions that came up when they read this work. Let's drive around. Let's welcome today our guest, author and comic creator, Susanna Ryan. Welcome, Susanna. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey, where you grew up, your background kind of in the city. Well, I was born and raised in Seattle, and I was never much of an outdoorsy kind of kid. I really loved to draw. I really loved to kind of hang out inside and daydream and do that sort of thing. And it wasn't until 2017 that I started to really enjoy taking long walks around the city. Um, Something just kind of compelled me out the front door one day. And I started within minutes seeing all these little things that I had never taken the time to notice before. Whenever I would go outside, I was kind of so focused on getting to the grocery store or getting to wherever I needed to go that I never really just kind of slowed down and saw what was actually there in the city. And one day, you know, that random day that I decided to take a walk, it was just like Seattle opened up for me in a way that I had never taken the time to see before. And from that day on, it felt like walking was all I wanted to do. And anytime I had a day off or a random hour, I would just leave my apartment on foot without a destination in mind and just go from there. And then after a while, it felt like I was seeing so many wonderful, weird mundane things and all these things that I had just never really seen before. And it was all blending together in my head. And so as a way to remember them all, I thought I would start something that I sort of envisioned as an illustrated travel journal of Seattle. And I thought I would keep it to myself. I thought, okay, I'll go out and I'll actually take notes on my walks and be a little bit more intentional about it. And then I'll kind of make a drawing about it. Maybe I'll put a map of where I went and what the highlights were. And after I made that first one, something kind of compelled me to feel like I should put it out there. I really had just decided, you know, I'm going to do this for myself. But I just looked at it and I thought, you know, my position or just how I feel about Seattle has changed so much just in the few months I've been walking. And it's changed how I see myself. It's just changed how I see the environment around me. And maybe there are other people out there who want to see this side of Seattle too. 
And I think so often when we're navigating a city, we kind of see either what we think should be there or what we kind of know to be there. Like if you live on a street and it has all these houses, you might think that house on the corner, oh, we know it's blue because we always turn in the same place. But have you really looked at that house? Have you really looked at the shape of the windows? Have you really looked at the porch? Have you looked at all these little details? You know, I think we just kind of fill in in our minds the way that things feel like they should be without really just being present with what is. It just felt like there were these little stories playing out on the sidewalks just hundreds of times a day, you know, across the city that would be so easy to miss, you know, if you just weren't paying attention to them. And even seeing little things like, why is it that I've walked eight blocks and I've seen three Skittles wrappers? You know, what does that say? It's like a tiny little story, you know, and it's not something like, you know, the front page of the Seattle Times isn't three Skittle wrappers found in Ravenna or whatever. And it just felt like it was telling me something about the current moment, about the current day, about the current hour that I just didn't really see being talked about or explored anywhere else. And tell me about your artistic background. Had you always been drawing since you were a young child? So my mom told me that I was born with a pencil in my hand, but it's never something I had any formal training in. It was just something that I always loved to do. I was actually kind of, I felt like because I could never draw the realistic fruit bowl in art class or kind of do that more technical drawing, I thought I wasn't really that good or remarkable. It was just something that I loved to do for myself. And so whenever I had time as a kid, it was basically what I loved to do was just sit around and draw. But I never thought I would um, really share it widely or bring it to other people because I just, I just didn't feel like I was that remarkable. But you didn't let that shut you down. I think that's really wonderful. And yeah. It was maybe your mother's encouragement or just something inside you. Yeah, I think it was just something that I was just so passionate about for my own sake. And I felt like... Part of that was just kind of keeping it mostly to myself and not sharing it with others. I would sometimes, you know, if there was some art contest at the grocery store or whatever, I might kind of put something in for that. I would never win. Um, but for the most part, I think that keeping it to myself was part of what made me not feel discouraged in it. So how did that kind of flow into Instagram? And so I decided to take a walk one day and take notes on the walk. And I went home and I reviewed my notes and I made a little comic about it in this new notebook that I had just bought. And I closed my notebook and I thought, wow, that was a really satisfying way to spend my day. You know, I got to walk, I got to draw, I got to combine these two things that I really love. And then I did some dishes, I did some other things. And then I like saw the notebook in the corner, just kind of like glowing at me a little bit. And I was like, okay, I opened it up again and I looked at it and then I closed it and then I opened it up. And I was like, I think you have to share this. And I'm so, I've been so good up to that point at not sharing things, feeling like, oh, maybe this doesn't have value to other people. Maybe this isn't anything, you know? But it was like in that moment, I just felt something really strongly pulling me in that direction. And so I thought, oh, Instagram, I had never used it before, but I thought that seems like a, a fairly easy way to get stuff out there without having to put a lot of like prep work and I don't have to make a cute website or do anything. I'm just going to put it out there. And so that very same day was July 1st, 2017, um, that I made that, that I took that walk and made that first comic. I downloaded Instagram. I 
thought, what, what's something that I can call this that's very straightforward? So I was like, Seattle Walk Report. And I wrote that across the top. And then I just chucked it up there. And I didn't really tell anybody about it. I think I told my mom and my sister and maybe a couple of friends. But I really just wanted it to be out there for other people to find, not really thinking that they necessarily would, um, but the same way that I had sort of stumbled into walking and the magic and everything of that, I kind of wanted this to be out there for other people to stumble upon in a sort of organic way and be like, what's all this, you know? And then I just kept walking and kept making the comic and it just really took off from there. I don't know if you had a byline on it or was Seattle Walk Report was like sort of the putative name of the person creating it? Yeah, actually, until my first book came out in 2019, I was anonymous. And I hadn't actually gone in with that intention. I sort of thought that um, anyone who was following along would somehow know it was me, maybe because my mom told them in the line at Albertsons or something. Um, and then as time went on, I found that kind of being anonymous and being a little bit incognito really felt like it helped my ability to make the comic and just kind of be out in the world. I didn't want it to be something where I had to wonder, you know, is that person hula hooping while eating a hot dog because they know I'm Seattle Walker Report and uh -huh. they want me to end up in the comic, <laughs> you know? So uh, it just felt right after a certain amount of time to not put my name on it. And then it ended up feeling right to share myself a little bit. And then what was your, like the pace of your making these comics as you were kind of ramping this up? Well, you know, at first I put a lot less thought and intention into the drawing. The drawing was just sort of the means to the end of telling this story. And then as time went on, I thought, oh, maybe you can like be a little bit more intentional about the art too and put a little bit more effort and thought into that. And so as time went on, I mean, if you go back and you look at some of the early Seattle Walk reports, it was very much like, okay, I have a 15 minute, you know, chunk of time and I'm just going to draw something really quickly. And then as time went on, I found it really fun and just nourishing to spend more time on the art aspect of it too. And so part of me feels like I kind of learned a lot about how to draw it over the process of doing this, you know, and having that sort of regular drawing practice where I was doing this. And at the beginning, I was um, posting maybe one or two a week. And just, it was just all I wanted to do. It was just so satisfying to spend my time that way. As I mentioned at the beginning, we had reached out through our social network to parents that have children, all of whom read Seattle Walk Report, one of which is my son. And I thought it would be actually a timely to play one of the questions right now because it relates to something you just said. This is from Isaac in Wedgwood, and he's nine years old. Do you like to draw or write better? That's a great question. You know, I like both things. I have definitely been drawing longer than I've been writing. I really learned to love to write in third grade. I had a wonderful third grade teacher named Miss Mo, and she really encouraged my creativity in writing. Drawing is just something that I've been doing longer, and it feels like a more natural part of me. Sometimes when I write, I feel like I get stuck sometimes, and I don't know quite the right words to say. But with drawing, I don't really feel that way. But one thing I love about making comics and one thing I love about Seattle Walk Report is that 
you can kind of, the two kind of go together in this really fun way and you can kind of play with, well, I'm going to have a little bit less writing here and more pictures to tell the story, or I'm going to have more words and less pictures, depending on what the story is that you're trying to tell. So I really like both of them. Drawing will always be my number one love though. Well, I would love to hear some of the stories from Seattle Walk Report. So what's one of like the weirdest things that you've come across and depicted? Well, this one holds a special place in my heart. It was just a couple months into doing Seattle Walk Report, and I was actually on a walk to work. So I wasn't really in the walk report mindset. I didn't have my notepad that I normally have with me on a walk. And it was around 17th and Madison, I think, on Capitol Hill, and I saw a carrot with a straw through it. And it was just sitting there on the sidewalk, so pristine. And I thought, this is so interesting. You know, carrots are hard and it was just a little soft plastic straw. And so it felt like, well, in order to get the straw through the carrot, you would need a third item, like maybe a pencil to pierce the carrot. And I just thought this is like a wonderful item. It belongs in a museum or something. Um, and I just wondered about it forever. And to this day, I think about that carrot with a straw through it all the time. It was just one of those little things where it just didn't make any sense and I couldn't find an explanation for it. And maybe someone was just bored and had a straw and a, and a carrot, or maybe somebody was trying to get carrot juice or who knows, uh, there's like any number of things it could be, but that one just really, um, stands out to me as being really memorable. I always ask our guests to share a place that matters to them and I'm just going to put you on the spot here. Since you're so Seattle-focused in your work, is there a place in the Pacific Northwest that's not in Seattle that you care about? No. I mean, I've spent so much time in Seattle, and I almost feel like I never need to go anywhere else because it's just a constant renewable resource of inspiration. And it's amazing how many times... I can walk the same street and have a completely different experience. And I'm like, why ever go on vacation or why ever, you know, do anything else? Like I have everything I need right here. And there's just so much cool stuff to be seen and it's constantly changing and I just love it so much. So yeah, I'm actually struggling to think of a place outside of Seattle that really means something significant to me. And then the opposite, is there a place in Seattle that you care about more than any other place? Something really compels me to Leshai Park for some reason. There's this giant sequoia tree there with a little bench nearby. And time and time again, I'll set off on these walks, not thinking I'll end up there. And then somehow I'll end up there on that bench. And it's like something is calling my name there. And it's not anything fancy. I mean, the giant sequoia tree is really cool, but it's not anything fancy. It just feels like I just feel a deep connection to it and a deep love for it. And I just find myself being drawn back there time and time again for reasons that I don't really understand. Well, thank you for sharing that. We asked our guests to bring in something physical that they um, care about and maybe represents who they are. Is there something you brought in? Yes. And I know that podcasts are not a visual medium, but what I brought in is this book called The Copycat Drawing Book by someone named Sally Kilroy. And it was a book that I had when I was young. I'm not sure how we got it, but we just always had it around. And as someone who loved to draw but didn't feel like very good at the technical side of things. The copycat drawing book just got me on this level. Um, it's very simple. 
Um, it'll show you how to draw a bird. It'll show you how to draw a fish, a cat, all these different things. And it really made me feel seen as an artist, if that makes sense. Um, it wasn't overly involved. It was just these very basic sort of shapes. And it taught me so much about how to draw. And in some ways, I feel like my style is pretty much just a slightly elevated Sally Kilroy. I feel like she really was the building blocks of what would become this lifelong love of drawing. And she has this page at the end where she incorporates several different things that she taught you how to draw earlier in the book. And it was really cool to see it all come together. And I remember just staring at the page and thinking, I hope one day I'm this good at drawing, wow. not knowing that I'd eventually, you know, have two books and be known as an artist in some way. I never thought I would be known as an artist outside of my own head. And so um, it just really means a lot to me and was such a formative book for me. So you have a lots of animals, pet dogs and cats. Do you have a pet or do you? I don't. Uh -huh. I'm currently petless and living vicariously through the dogs that I see on the street and them. pets of friends. Any yeah. other fun dog stories or cat stories? I actually, um, one of my longtime goals was to reunite a lost cat and with a cat poster. And a couple months ago, I had seen this cat poster around town and something was telling me, I'm going to find this cat. I just felt it in my bones. And then I was walking along one day and it was actually kind of dark outside. So I couldn't really see. And I saw this black cat darting across the street. And I thought, that's the cat. That's the cat. And I had taken a picture of the missing poster because I don't know, for some reason, I just felt like this was my moment to shine. And I was looking at the under the car of the cat, looking at the picture I had taken on my phone, kind of going back and forth. And it was totally the cat. And so I made the call and I grabbed onto the cat and I was just like, okay, I'm here. Like, you know, here's my address. And that was really exciting. You know, kind of a bucket list item that uh -huh. I've always wanted to do. Um, you know, one of the things I think it's just kind of delightful that the drawings that I do in the book and the dogs that are in the book and on the Instagram are all real people's dogs. Mm. And I don't know if they know that they're gracing the end paper of a book, you know, just because they happen to be walking around Green Lake on the same day that I was or whatever. So it's kind of fun to uh, put those little pieces of Seattle and people's lives in the comics and the books. Is there anything that's like haunting or scary that you encountered? One time I was walking down in Fife and I was actually having a very good time and um, I got to kind of the Pacific Highway and I saw a pool chair surrounded by seven of the exact same shoe. It wasn't different shoes, they were all the same size. Were they the same foot? Same foot, same shoe. And I thought maybe if there were eight of them, even though they were the same foot, maybe that would be okay. But something about seven of the exact same shoe surrounded, you know, on the ground by this pool chair and everything. I was like, I need to get out of here. <laughs> and so I had intended to keep walking, but something about it put me off so much. I was on a bus within a minute. I was like, I'm out of here. <laughs> Well, that brings up an interesting topic to me, which is the numerology, the way you have these counts. Like, as an example, there's 
a section in Ballard where you count the number of houses for sale and then the number of jaywalkers. There were like 24 houses and six jaywalkers. Or Capitol Hill, there were 13 coffee shops and then 30 people in construction vests. And so I'm just curious where the motivation comes from or how you arrived at that sort of theme or structure. I think it's just an interesting way to relate to your environment. And typically what I do is I'll leave without having any sort of intention of what I'm going to tally. And then it seems like a theme will start to emerge on that particular day, on that particular walk. So it just so happens that, okay, here are four people in construction vests on Capitol Hill. That's kind of interesting. And then you walk one block and there's seven more or whatever. And you just start to sort of notice these patterns. And so I think I found that it was the easiest way to convey some patterns that I was seeing or just some trends of that particular day. Um, and some of the things are stationary, like the coffee shops, and some of the things are a little bit more ephemeral. It's not like if you took that walk again, you'd see the exact same number of construction workers. Um, so I think it's just an interesting sort of, I've always liked to kind of collect mundane data, uh-huh. you know, um, because I feel like it tells a story that's much less mundane. Um, but I really don't know what compels me to do it. One of the things, um, when I first started doing Seattle Walk Report, I thought I would maybe use some of my existing knowledge of neighborhoods and kind of what they're known for to inform the comics and the sorts of things I would count. So if I was knew I was going to take a walk in South Lake Union, ahead of time I would kind of think, okay, I bet I'll see some ducks and I'll see some people with lanyards and I'll see some Starbucks cups or whatever. Um, and so then I was looking for those things rather than seeing what was actually there. And once I let go of that and just felt like, okay, I'm going to go into this neighborhood or this walk, like I've never been here before. Like I have no existing ideas about what this neighborhood is or what Seattle is or anything. I'm just going in with a completely open mind. It really changed the comic a lot for me. And I think it changed people's relationship to the comic too, because I wasn't trying to bring in this existing knowledge. I was really just trying to be present with what was. And I think sometimes in life, I was very just sort of focused on end goals and results. I was so much more focused on destinations and not journeys. And I always kind of thought it was corny when people would be like, oh, it's about the journey, not the destination. I'm like, Psh, whatever, I'm very focused and, you know, here's what I want. And through Seattle Walk Report and through being just more open and present with what is, it's changed how I see the world completely and how I see my own life and my own journey. It's all journey, never destination, you know. And so this comic has really changed how I see everything. Nice. Well, I'm going to play another question from Elizabeth, age five, from Bothell, Washington, who's read page 74 and had to do with sea glass at Alki Beach. Does sea glass hurt the animals in the ocean? Does sea glass hurt the animals in the ocean? No, typically sea glass, because it's been tumbled by the waves so often, it gets this sort of soft quality. So all the sharp edges get kind of smoothed out and dulled down. Obviously, we don't want glass in the ocean, but the waves have a way of smoothing it out so that it doesn't hurt the animals there. So I'm wondering how the pandemic has affected this process because it had to do with being out and about. Did it impact your walks in any way? Yeah, you know, I signed for Secret Seattle, my second book, a couple of days before 
the big shutdown where it was clear that everything was going to be closed in March 2020. And I knew a lot of what I wanted to research and talk about. I had taken a lot of photos of different utility covers and fire hydrants and that sort of thing. But I found that on my day-to-day walks, I was spending much more time just in my own neighborhood, walking the same streets and same routes or, you know, a variation on the same routes every day rather than going out outside of my own neighborhood. And it sort of helped me reconnect with why I fell in love with walking to begin with and helped me feel more in tune with the rhythms of my own neighborhood. It was interesting to see, oh, here's a new um, sign in somebody's window that wasn't here yesterday, or here's something new in a little free library, that sort of thing. But it was interesting to go from feeling so connected to the city through walking around in it to suddenly feeling not quite as connected and making a book that felt kind of very much about connections. And um, I just felt sort of like it was really difficult to write a book about a city and that's sort of about natural exploration in a city when you don't really know what the city is going to look like when the book comes out or what its inhabitants are going to care about. It felt kind of silly to spend seven hours researching a utility cover when it felt like there was so much more going on. And at the same time, I was getting so much feedback from people who said, wow, you know, walking is pretty much all I have to do right now. You know, it's my one thing that I do every day is I'll go out at three and take a walk. And, you know, your work and your book has really helped me tune into those little things in my environment in a new way. And so it was helpful to know that I had made work that was helping people feel more connected during a very disconnected time. And then Secret Seattle was launched. So what is the distinction between Secret Seattle and how did that differ? So Seattle Walk Report is very much focused on the ephemeral discoveries of a meandering walk for the most part. It's, you know, walking in Ballard and seeing some boats on the water and seeing some knocked over newspaper boxes and just sort of very much a slice of life sort of exploration of Seattle. And after that book came out, I slowly found myself becoming more interested in the things around me and my walks that were a little bit more permanent. So whereas before I might have said, ooh, a banana peel on a lamppost, this is so exciting, I thought, what's this lamppost under the banana peel? I started seeing these little patterns in utility covers and you know, the lampposts and everything else that just felt like they had a story of their own that might be worth telling. But by then I had established kind of the format and formula of Seattle Walk Report as being so ephemeral. And I wasn't sure how to bring in that more historical element or if I wanted to dive into the research side of things a little bit more. And then I had been kind of gathering photos of those sorts of things of infrastructure type stuff um, while making my regular comics about more ephemeral things. And then I was walking on Capitol Hill one evening and I was walking past this building on 14th and Pike that I had walked by a million times before. And I noticed something new for the first time. On the side of this building was a little door and on the middle of the door, there was a little shield-shaped emblem embossed with the words Clark's Coal Chute, T.F. Clark, Seattle, Washington, patented July 24th, 1906. And I thought, wow, this is so cool. 
who is this man? What's this coal chute? Clark's coal chute, great name, you know. And at that moment, I did a quick internet search for Clark's coal chute, expecting somebody to talk about it or maybe someone took a photo of it. No results anywhere. And I was like, okay, I, I need to know more about this. Everything else that I'd taken photos of so far, I was kind of like, this is interesting. I don't know why I'm really taking these photos. Um, but whatever. But this, I was like, okay, I need to get to the bottom. Who is this TF Clark? What's up with Clark's coal chute? And so I started researching it and I was finding all these interesting things about this man. And he was this uh, sheet metal worker and he lived on Capitol Hill and finding all this stuff. And then a couple of weeks later, I went back to get a better photo of the coal chute door and it was gone and it was replaced with a piece of plywood. And they weren't tearing the building down. They were just refurbishing it and doing these things, painting the inside. And in that moment, I felt like this disappeared without anyone ever having acknowledged that it was here at all. And it does tell a little story about Seattle. And something in that moment, I was like, okay, I, this is my next book. This is the story that I want to tell. I want to tell these little pieces of Seattle that may disappear without anyone ever having really noticed that they were here to begin with. We get so focused on kind of the bigger changes in the city. You know, this building went up, this building went down, that sort of thing. But these little pieces of history that you can actually see today across different neighborhoods, I wanted to tell that story. And so it just all became so clear to me in an instant. I looked over the photos I had taken over the last few months and thought about what I knew and what I would like to know about this sort of history, and I just dove right into it. So who was Clark, and <laughs> if you can share? Yeah, he was, um, he was born in New York in April 1847, and he moved to Seattle in the 1880s. And he came sometime before the Great Seattle Fire of 1889, uh, a lot of people came to Seattle after the Great Seattle Fire because um, there was so much rebuilding to be done. So a lot of folks working in construction and that sort of thing. And at the time, it was kind of like, oh, uh, you came here after the Great Seattle Fire? Like us old time Seattleites, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, we've been here forever and you just came, you know, for that. Um, so he came sometime before then and he set up a... Um, shop that was just a sheet metal fabrication sort of shop. And he first got into making these camp stoves that became really popular with people going to Alaska for the gold rush. And then he just decided to patent this um, coal chute door in the early 1900s. And at the time, it was pretty common for people to be able to get into your coal chute and slide down into your house and steal things. There's actually a lot of stories in the Seattle Times about how so-and-so had their skis stolen out of their house through their coal chute, or so-and-so lost their canned peas because, you know... It's someone... like the porch pirates of yesteryear. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. People sliding down your coal chutes. And so uh, his was actually burglar-proof, um, and that was one of the things that he put in his patent application, that, you know, no one's going to slide down and <laughs> steal your stuff. Um, but yeah, he just, um, he kept making this little coal chute door. And he actually sold, um, based on an advertisement, I saw over 1,400 across Washington and Oregon. And then he ended up, uh, he died in 1921 on Capitol Hill. And that's just basically his story. It's not super remarkable, but I think one of the things that really appeals to me about it is that a lot of lives aren't very remarkable, but people still make an impact on <laughs> other people's lives and who would have thought that 100 years later someone would be 
caring about or talking about this person who led a pretty, you know, normal life, happened to patent this coal shoot, you know, but otherwise just sort of was somebody living and working on Capitol Hill and, you know, making his way. One of the things that I really like is his house was at 18th and Republican. And I think at 16th and Republican, there's one of his coal shoot doors. So to see this little part of him over 100 years later, still sitting not far from where he lived, that's pretty cool. Let's play another question from one of our children listeners. This is Lucas, age eight, who lives in Linwood. Why were the wooden sidewalks replaced with the concrete sidewalks? That's a great question. So when Seattle was first getting sidewalks, they used wood um, sidewalks because concrete wasn't really readily available. It wasn't really much of a thing yet that people could use to make sidewalks. And Seattle was a a timber town, lots of um, wood going into buildings and different structures like that. One of the problems with the wood sidewalks, though, is that because we got so much rain and because there was so much dirt, it was so muddy all the time. To live in Seattle at that time in the early 1900s and before that was pretty much just to be covered in mud all the time, it seems like. Um, So we had these plank sidewalks and they were just always sinking to the ground. And so um, when concrete became more readily available and cheaper, it just made sense to upgrade to that. You had a little bit more longevity and uh, it was just a better, more long lasting uh, substance to use. And it's amazing to me that there are these sidewalks that, you know, were paved in 1906 or, you know, it seems like between 1904 and 1906 is when Seattle got most of its first concrete sidewalks, and a lot of them can still be found today. So that's a long time and a lot longer than those wood sidewalks would have lasted. One of the fun things in the Secret Seattle is the sidewalk stamps. So can you explain what you learned? Yeah. So um, when I was taking those walks where I was seeing sorts of these little history things, I noticed one day a stamp in the sidewalk with somebody's name on it, and the name was Robert Sparger. And I thought, huh, that's really interesting. And I think I may have looked around a little bit at the time to see if I could find anything online about it. And I didn't really see much. And I just thought, oh, that's interesting. And then a couple days later, I saw another stamp for Robert Sparker. And I thought, okay, interesting. And then a couple days later, I saw another stamp for somebody else. And so I was like, okay, this is really interesting. And it was only when I started to do the research for the book that I sort of uh, found the whole story of it. So when Seattle was first getting concrete sidewalks in the early 1900s, it was common for the contractors selected for the job to stamp their name into the sidewalk. It was sort of half business card, half celebrating a sidewalk well paved. So across the city today, you can still see these different sorts of um, sidewalk stamps. Robert Sparger is definitely one of the um, most prolific concrete people. He, I'm fairly sure that he paved more sidewalks in Seattle during the early 1900s than any other contractor. He's an interesting guy too, because uh, he constructed the entire first floor of his Queen Anne home with concrete, the floors, walls, and everything. And that home still stands. And so it's interesting. He was very passionate about concrete. Um, And there's a few other ones. Um, 
Hans Peterson was somebody who was a very, very prolific contractor who did the King County Courthouse, Washington Hall, the Arctic Building, all these buildings that are still standing today. And he's another one where you can find Hans Peterson uh, sidewalk stamps all across the city. My favorite one, though, is this guy named John Pierce. And I've actually only seen one of these sidewalk stamps, and it was over in Queen Anne. His father was also named John Pierce, and he had had a mansion raffle in Sioux City, Iowa. He had lost a bunch of money in the um, Panic of 1893, the worst economic crash prior to the Great Depression. And he decided to have a mansion raffle to sell off his mansion. And he ended up selling 30,000 tickets nationwide at a dollar apiece. But it turned out that the entire mansion raffle was fixed to favor somebody that he owed money to over in New York. And so he left Sioux City, just, you know, left and went to Seattle with his son and his wife and everything. And they started to be contractors together. And then his son went on to take over the family business. And then his son gets appointed to the Seattle City Council in, I think it was 1911, after a council member had to resign due to illness. And then he ended up getting kicked off of the Seattle City Council because he was doing some uh, sneaky stuff with money. And so uh, it's so funny that there's this little kind of concrete monument to disgraced former Seattle City Council members out there in Seattle. You can just see that name, John Pierce. So I guess he must have been doing something right, you know, because his sidewalks are still here, (laughs) at least one of them. But it's just so interesting to see these people who... I mean, literally made a mark on the city and who can still be found today. Their work on just some random day, they were just doing their job, paving a sidewalk, dunking their little name stamp into it and didn't know that we would be here over 100 years later still walking on those same sidewalks. I was wondering if you had somebody from out of town who was visiting and you were bringing them on a tour downtown and you wanted to make, you know, basically bring them through some of the amazing things that you've discovered, what that route might look like and what would be a few of the other things that you'd point out. The biggest things that leap to mind is I really like people seeing the central library. It's such a, um, people have strong opinions about it, either love it or hate it or are confused by it. And even just looking at it from the outside, I'm always interested to hear people's perspective on it. It's such an interesting building, especially an interesting building to be a library. Can I interrupt you for a minute? Um, We have Avi, who's my son, who actually had a question about the Central Library, so it would be timely to ask it. How did you count the uh, windows in the Central Library? So I actually looked at one of the reports from the people who had designed the building and saw how many windows would be needed. And it's kind of interesting now because they're special windows that are made just for that building. So if one of them breaks, they're awfully hard to replace, which maybe they should have thought about while they were designing the building. But yes, I did not individually count the windows, unfortunately. He was concerned that you had. (laughs) I wouldn't put it past myself to uh, count 9,994 windows. But for that, in that case, I didn't. I looked up um, to see what the architect had to say. 
Well, good. So we're on this wonderful tour of downtown, beginning with the Central Library. <laughs> yes. And then um, I always like, um, even though it's kind of, uh, you know, so well known, Pike Place is a special place. And I think it's always worth seeing. I especially like when um, just looking over the water from the upper levels of Pike Place Market and just seeing some of the old I really like bricks and I feel like bricks contain a lot of history and just kind of being amongst that place that's been sort of a gathering place for Seattle for so long. It just has a very special sort of vibe to it. And then, you know, a nice walk along the waterfront. Um, there's just so much to see and be and it just makes me happy to be there. It's just one of those places where I keep finding myself coming back to it time and time again. One of the topics I would love in this podcast is to kind of try to define Seattle culture. Like, who are we, broadly speaking, as a culture, maybe distinct from other parts of the country or the world? And is there anything for you that would be like definers? Yeah. Well, you know, I spend a lot of time, even just for fun, curling up with a big old mug of tea and looking through the Seattle Times and the Seattle PI historical databases and reading old articles about just various things in Seattle. I'll use it a lot in research, but sometimes I just do it for fun. And one of the things that's really amazed me is that there are so many articles from 20 years ago, from 50 years ago, from 100 years ago, that feel like they could have been written yesterday. Um, just these complaints about city life and, you know, Seattle's growth and, you know, people kind of being fearful of, is there going to be a place for me in this future Seattle, wherever it's going? Um, and it also just seems like one of the constants in Seattle has been change. It's not like it was one way forever and then 10 or 20 years ago something changed. It's been constantly changing and there's constantly been worries about, you know, is the freeway going to change everything? Is this happening? Is that happening? And it's both this kind of people worrying about Seattle but then also believing in Seattle in this unique little way. Seattle is kind of a scrappy city. It was something that, you know, wasn't super well known. It was kind of like, oh, you live over in Seattle, you know. Um, but then also, you know, these people who really believed in Seattle and boosted Seattle and wanted to put Seattle on the map in various ways. So I don't know. It's kind of interesting just to get the perspective of people at the time worrying about maybe not the exact same thing that we worry about today, but some defining thing that just felt like such a huge deal at the time. And we can look back now and see how it all worked out. Um, it's so much harder, obviously, when you're in it to know that things will work out. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I, I just, I have a tendency to believe that they do. I think sometimes things happen along the way and it can feel like the world is ending for real this time. But the number of times that people have felt like the world's ending or that Seattle as we know it is over, um, I don't know. It, it's still here. They far outnumber <laughs> the times it actually did end. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so another thing that I love, you know, is that, you know, a strength of your work is it's very empirical. It's very observed or objectively researched. But I was just curious, do you ever, are you ever tempted or do you ever make anything up? We've had authors and artists here that love to wax eloquent about how they, there's elements of truth in their fiction, but it's never just that. They invent 
along the way. And I was just curious, as an author, yeah. are you tempted or do you invent things as well as observe? You know, one of the things that has really fueled this project is just that Seattle's constantly coming up with the material for me. And I hardly have to do anything. I just have to see it and then kind of uh, interpret it in my own sort of way and put it through my own little filter. So I think what I'm more so than making up, say, what I saw or anything like that, I'm sort of being imaginative about how to convey the information in a fun way. So I'm the one coming up with the idea that we have to host a, in Secret Seattle, we have to have a beauty pageant for utility covers uh-huh. or whatever. Uh-huh. And so I think that's where the kind of like creativity and imagination and making stuff up comes from. The format the, that you use, the matrix to convey the truth exactly. is very inventive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that's kind of where I let that in more so than... Wow, that wasn't a very good walk. I think I'll make up that I saw a uh, corgi or whatever. Um, I try to, you know, stay very true to what I actually did see. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for being our guest today, Susanna. We've learned so much. Thank you so much for having me. Join us next time when our guest will be Eric Reynolds of Fantagraphics. For 46 years, Fantagraphics has published alternative comics, classic comic strips, anthologies, manga, magazines, and graphic novels. Their stable of creators include Jessica Abel, Peter Bagg, Ivan Brunetti, Charles Burns, Daniel Close, Robert Crum, Mary Fleener, Roberta Gregory, Joe Sacco, Chris Ware, and the delightful Hernandez Brothers. All of this brilliance and their world headquarters is not far away, tucked into the Maple Leaf neighborhood of Seattle's North End and with a bookstore and gallery further south in Seattle's historic Georgetown community. So whether you love graphic novels or would like to discover them, you won't want to miss our next episode. Thank you for joining us today. Audio engineering and sound design by Daniel Gunther. Photography by Brandon Williams. Administrative support from Mary Barbour. Theme music by Tomo Nakayama and performed by Grand Hallway. With additional music by Ryan Hunt and Andrew Weathers. We record at the Jack Straw Cultural Center in Seattle's University District, one of several remarkable Seattle neighborhoods included in Susanna's Seattle Walk Report. I'm Edward Krigsman, and you've been listening to Power of Place, Stories of the Pacific Northwest. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a review or subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you know of a place in the Pacific Northwest that matters to you, please tell us about it. We'd love to hear your stories.